You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. This morning, we're launching a new series titled The Real Jesus, and we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke for one whole year. So if you have your Bibles, your devices, I just want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to focus on four verses, but this morning, we're going to discover that 2,000 years ago, a man named Luke, and we're going to hear a lot, learn a lot about Luke today, went on a quest for the real Jesus, and that is the title of the message. And I would like to suggest this morning, the quest for the real Jesus is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Since the age of enlightenment, skepticism, distrust, confusion, and more recently, a harsh antagonism has surfaced regarding Jesus, who he is, and what he did. Part of the problem is the presupposition people have regarding Jesus, the Bible, and the historical narrative of Christianity. Let me illustrate this, take you back to our third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. It's real interesting, you look at the life of Jefferson, he was an influencer, however, he was a naturalist. In other words, he did not believe, he was predisposed that there was no such thing as the supernatural. And so here's what happened, folks. He sat in the Oval Office with a Bible and a pair of scissors. He went page to page to page through the whole Bible and literally clipped and pasted anything that was supernatural, anything that was miraculous, anything that was divine out of the Bible. And he created what is called the Jefferson Bible. It got published, I have a copy of it today. No miracles, no divinity. Yes, there's Jesus, there's morals, there's ethics, but no way did he die and raise from the grave to become the savior of the world. Now that might seem like it's pretty extreme, but for the past 200 years, that's what we have been experiencing. Fast forward more recently, During the 1980s and the 1990s, a more sophisticated effort by a select group of what I would call so-called New Testament scholars and fellows created what is called the Jesus Seminar. Some of you are familiar. Their mission, listen to this, was to discern the reliability of the words of Jesus recorded in the four gospel accounts. They use the system of four colored beads to vote and to determine if Jesus spoke the words and accomplished the deeds. After 15 years of sophisticated scholarly research, guess what their conclusion was? The Jesus Seminars fellow concluded that only about 18% of Jesus' saying and 16% of Jesus' deeds are indeed authentic. Then they went on to publish a minimum of four books and literally rewrote the New Testament Gospels. Then, in 2003, Dan Brown added to the confusion with his novel titled The Da Vinci Code, and he created a firestorm suggesting, and I quote, this is what Brown wrote, almost everything our fathers taught us about Jesus 
is false. His novel sold over 80 million copies and had been translated into 44 different languages. Now you may be wondering, do these efforts of the critics, the skeptics pay off? Are they having an impact? Well, I was stunned to read a 2015 survey conducted by the Church of England, and it discovered this, 40% of all adults in England either do not believe or are not sure that Jesus was a real person who lived on earth. In fact, this is staggering, 22% think he is a fictional character. Now, the news is a bit better back in America. David Kinnaman, president of the Barna Research Group, directed a national study and says this, and I quote, there isn't much argument about whether Jesus Christ actually was a historical person, but nearly everything else about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. So the ultimate question is this. Can we know the real Jesus? I want to show you a verse from Luke chapter 9. 2,000 years ago, Jesus is tying together his public ministry, and he asks this question. He says to his disciples, after investing in them, living with them, teaching them, he asks this question. Who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? Friends, that was a relevant question then, and it is a very relevant question today. And so now we go on a journey, and it's going to be a year-long journey to discover the real Jesus according to scriptures. And so I hope you have your Bibles. I want to invite you to stand. This morning we're just going to look at four verses, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Stand with me, and uh, we can read uh, this passage together. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. Whoops, going back. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Please be seated. I hope this morning you have your Connect card. And I have a deep conviction. It starts with the blessing. My deep conviction this morning is this. Each one of us can know the certainty of who the real Jesus is by trusting, and that's the key word this morning, the biblical and historical account of his life. Think about the four illustrations I gave you this morning. The president couldn't trust that the biblical account had supernatural elements to it, divine intervention, God influence. And then you move to the Jesus Seminar. The scholars of our institutions across America could not trust the accounts of what was written about Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they got to vote what was real and what wasn't. Da Vinci basically rewrote history, Dan Brown, through the Da Vinci Code. 
suggesting that everything we've learned about Jesus is false. And then people, through media, through Hollywood, etc., buy into it and think that Jesus is somewhat of a fictional character. How sad, folks. And so the journey we're going on is real. For you, your kids, your grandkids, for your family, your loved ones, your extended family, for your coworkers, because they're wondering, can they know the real Jesus? The Jesus that we get hyped about around Christmas and celebrate at Easter. Can we know him? Can we know him personally? Can we trust the record? Can his life influence us today as it did Luke's 2,000 years ago? And so four things I want to highlight about trust. If you have your connect card, let's take a look. Trust number one, you can trust Luke. I had so much fun this past week uh, learning much of what I've never discovered about Luke the person. And when I invested in and who he was and what history says about Luke, boy, there were so many aha moments. So two solid reasons you can trust Luke, the author of this gospel narrative. And the first reason is this. Luke was a historian. Folks, mark that down. Luke did his homework before writing the account of the real Jesus. I get a sense when reading Luke's introduction that he wants us to know he went on a journey. He was an investigative journalist. He was doing research. And he was writing to persuade Theophilus and us 2,000 years later who the real Jesus is. Look back, if you would, at Luke 1, verses 3 through 4. Here's what Luke writes. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything. He's a journalist. He's a historian. He's doing research. He's doing his homework from the very first, and we're going to talk about that. To write to you an orderly sequence, Luke is the most orderly in his gospel, meaning somewhat chronological, not perfectly chronological, but mostly chronological. And then he says, most excellent Theophilus. And I love the purpose. Whenever you see the phrase, so that, that's the purpose. So that you might know the certainty of the things which you have been instructed. In other words, Theophilus had heard some things about Jesus, who he was, what he accomplished. And he is writing now, commissioned by Theophilus, I want you to know these truths for certain. Now Luke has exceptional credentials. In Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to him as dearly loved physician. Now again, you might think that's inconsequential. It's hugely important why Luke is an educated man and he is a doctor by profession. Why is that important? 90% of the ancient world in the first century, generally speaking, were illiterate. So Luke is educated. He was disciplined. He studied hard. He paid his dues to write one of the gospel accounts. William M. Ramsey was a classical scholar and archaeologist at Oxford University. He spent a lifetime digging up sites which tested the accuracy of Luke's writings. He began his work as a skeptic, folks, rejecting the historicity of the New Testament. His discoveries, however, convinced him otherwise. 
Ramsey published his archaeological results in 10 volumes in 1915. Can you imagine? The evidence changed his mind from skepticism in the Bible, in the life of Christ, because of Luke's truthfulness in history. Ramsey writes this about Luke. He says, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Luke is a historian of the first rank. After a lifetime of research, archaeological sites, 10 volumes of conclusion, he says you could trust Luke. He's a historian. He's an archaeologist. He did his homework. The second reason you can trust Luke, and I think this is the most important reason, is because of his character. As I looked into this gospel and looked into how Luke is referred to in the New Testament, and he is referred to, Luke is a very humble man. He never draws attention to himself. He does not even mention himself in the introduction to his two books, Luke and Acts. And by the way, folks, Luke and Acts is 25% of the New Testament. He doesn't draw any attention to himself. You know who he draws attention to? Jesus the name above all names. He doesn't want you to know about Luke. He wants us to know about the real Jesus. Love that about Luke. All righty. What are you doing over there, Austin? I'm going to pick on you, man. That's fine. Need a little bit of levity. Okay, so... <laughs> um, so... We don't hear a lot about Luke from the New Testament documents except what others write about him. We're going to see how Paul was so endeared to him. But Luke never puts himself out in front. He's humble, but he really puts Jesus out in front. Now, thankfully, though, there is one historic fragment that was penned about 100 years after Luke, and it paints an amazing portrait of his character. And I'm going to walk you through that fragment. It's a simple paragraph, but when the Bible was being written in the early years, this always prefaced the Gospel of Luke. So you got Luke in Latin, and then it gave the introduction. This came out of the ancient world. Here's what we know about Luke. Stick with me. The document states... Indeed, Luke was an Antiochian Syrian and a doctor by profession. Simply stated, that means Luke lived in Antioch. This is important information, folks. Antioch is north of Israel, and if you read Acts 13, it's the mission base. It's where the church is fasting and praying. The Holy Spirit sets apart who? Barnabas and Paul for missions. This is Antioch. He's from there. So he was exposed to some great leaders. Now, this is real interesting. Luke was a disciple of the apostles. Luke was a Gentile who converted to Christianity. As a Gentile, he did not have a Jewish heritage. Like some of us, Luke did not grow up going to church, meeting with God's people, or reading the Bible. However, Luke had a personal encounter with the real Jesus, and it changed his life forever. As a disciple of the apostles, Luke knew Paul Intimately, he interacted and was influenced by the other apostles, Peter, James, John, Thomas, and Matthew. Luke later, however, followed Paul, and this is a key phrase, until his martyrdom. I think I know what's behind that phrase. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writes his final letter from prison, 
And notice the phrase on the screen. Here's what he says about Luke. He says, Timothy, only Luke is with me. You know how important that statement is? He's abandoned by everybody. All in Asia, the churches in Asia Minor forsook Paul. Why did they forsake him? Paul is hot. Wherever Paul went, he got in trouble. You ever travel with someone like that? He's getting beaten, getting stoned, getting whipped, getting thrown into prison. And now here he is in prison writing his final letter. Nero's going to take his life, going to behead him. He says, you know what, everybody abandoned me. And you, you feel the brokenness in, in Paul's heart. But then he says this, Luke is with me. My dear friend Luke stuck with me to the end. I love that about Luke. And it begs a question for all of us. How many friends do we have who are as devoted as Luke was to Paul? How many friends have been that supportive, that loyal, that true to the end like Luke? That's the character of this man. Regardless, if everybody else forsakes you, Paul, count me in. I'm loyal to the end. Notice this next phrase. Luke was serving the Lord blamelessly. Isn't that a beautiful statement? May it be said of each one of us here this morning. When people look at your life, when they look at mine, blameless, God-fearing, walking with the Lord. Not perfect, folks, but being sanctified. The next phrase is pretty striking. Luke never had a wife, and he never fathered children. Think about that for a moment. I would suggest that is a major sacrifice. But why did he do it? For love of his Savior and to serve the Lord faithfully. Guys, I could never imagine serving the Lord and doing life without Alan by my side. That would be so hard. Luke says, I'm going to give that up. I'm going to sacrifice that for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. And now finally, he died at the age of 84. Notice this last phrase. Wouldn't this be beautiful to be said about us? Full of the Holy Spirit. They looked at his life. And he said, this is a man of God, transformed by the real Jesus. And at age 84, he finished the course, he kept the faith, he was full of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful statement. Luke finished well. A few years ago, Anna and I visited, visited Ephesus, where Luke's tomb is located. Of course, Luke's soul is with the Lord but his body remains in Ephesus. I want to show you a monument as you walk into Luke's tomb. Hopefully you can see it on the screen. It's a pillar, and there's two symbols. The cross is very evident at the top. Right below it is a bull. The early church identified Luke with the bull. Why? It was a symbol of sacrifice in the ancient world. He gave he was all in, time, treasure, talent, touch. He sacrificed not taking a wife, not having children. He gave up his career as a physician to do diligence, to be kind of like an Indiana Jones, explore the Mediterranean world, do the homework, do the research, and write about the real Jesus, and we have his accounts. When you read Luke, trust him. He gave a lot, folks. He was a humble man. He was a man of character but he was a man transformed by the real Jesus. Secondly, trust number two, 
You can trust Theophilus. And here's why I say that. A lot of times people would suggest things like this about Christianity. Oh, you're not objective, you're subjective. It's something you know inside, not outside. You haven't done your homework. Let me tell you a little bit about Theophilus today. Luke is writing to Theophilus, and I believe this from the record, Theophilus had no agenda except to know one thing, who Jesus of Nazareth really is. So let's talk about who Theophilus is. First, he's a Gentile. But he also was given a title in Luke 1, 1 through 4. He is called Most Excellent Theophilus. That is a clue to his identity. Why? Three times in the book of Acts, Paul stands before three individuals, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, and they were called most excellent. Therefore, we can safely conclude that Theophilus is some sort of high-ranking Roman official. What's he doing? Exploring Christianity. Two things stand out about Theophilus. First, Theophilus wants answers. He wants to know the facts about the real Jesus. This is an objective search without biases. Theophilus comes in with a clean slate, no presuppositions. Luke, just tell me who Jesus is. He's asking questions, either as a seeker or a new convert to Christianity. What are his questions? Questions like, is Jesus really God? Did he really perform miracles like walking on water, casting out demons, multiplying loaves and fishes, feeding 4,000, feeding 5,000? Could he really command nature to obey him? Did he really die on the cross? Was he buried? And most importantly, Luke, did Jesus Christ rise from the grave? Is he the resurrected Christ? Should we celebrate Easter? Now, in addition... We could trust Theophilus because he goes all in, and please hear me, don't miss this, folks. He risks everything to get his questions answered. Theophilus puts his career and reputation on the line. Please remember, in the ancient world of the first century, who's God right now? It's not Jesus. His name has not even spread. Caesar is God. If Theophilus challenges the notion that Caesar is God, it could cost him everything. It could cost him his reputation, his position, his livelihood, his very job. In the first century, people would say, my highest allegiance is to my nation and to Caesar. However, when you come to know Jesus, you would have to say, my highest allegiance and loyalty is to Jesus and his kingdom. And so, like some of you today, Theophilus is wrestling with his faith. Do I really believe in Jesus? Am I willing to go public and identify with him through believer's baptism? Am I courageous enough to declare on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Jesus is Lord? I get a sense that Theophilus wanted to do that, but he needed to know the real Jesus, but he was willing to risk everything. Trust number three, you can trust the gospel sources. I want to highlight two sources right now. And folks, this is very, very important to understand Luke and the whole journey he went on. So source number one, the gospel records. Stick with me, examine the text. Look at verses one and two. Luke writes, 
Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. Luke wants us to know that he is not alone in his quest for the real Jesus. One thing we know for certain about Luke's research and investigation into the life of Jesus is that he relied heavily on the Gospel of Mark first and then the Gospel of Matthew. You may be familiar with the phrase synoptic gospel. Think of it as synonym gospel. We understand as best we can that Mark was written first, Matthew, then Luke. And so what Luke does, as a second generation believer, he goes to a source, Mark. He goes to the eyewitness, Matthew, and we can compare the text. 25% of Luke comes from Mark. 25% comes from Matthew. But here's the beautiful thing, folks. 41 unique accounts in Luke are brand new to the gospel accounts. In other words, if Luke didn't do his homework, if Luke didn't meet with eyewitnesses, if Luke didn't become an investigative journalist, we would not have those accounts. Some of my favorite stories in the gospel of Luke come from Luke 15. The story of the prodigal sons. Luke's the only one who talks about that. How about Zacchaeus in Luke 19? We, Zacchaeus, climbs a tree. I must stay at your home. No one else talks about Zacchaeus except Luke. Thank God he did his homework. And he met up with men like Zacchaeus whose lives were transformed. He heard this beautiful parable about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And he gives us those truths. Without Luke, we would have so many uh, parables missing in the gospel account. So what do I take away from that? Please hear me, folks. Luke did his homework. He investigated. He researched. He traveled. He let go of his career to pursue the real Jesus. He started with Mark and Matthew. What does that mean? Mark and Matthew are authoritative, and they are reliable. You can hang your hat on them, too. You can trust not only Luke, but Mark and Matthew, who were sources to Luke. Now, this is fun. Source number two. The from the beginning eyewitnesses, track with me. In verse two, the phrase original witnesses, and in verse three, carefully investigating everything from the beginning, from the first, is vital to understanding eyewitnesses. John 15, Jesus made a beautiful promise, and boy, oh boy, did it come true in the New Testament. Jesus told his disciples, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit shows up on the day of Pentecost, he's going to testify of Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the King. But notice what also Jesus says. This is a promise. You also will testify because you have been with me from where? From the beginning, folks from the beginning. And that was the litmus test when they were replacing the traitor Judas. One of the litmus tests is if we're going to have another apostle in Judas's place, guess what? He had to be with us from the beginning, from the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. He had to know the full story. He had to be an eyewitness. He had to be there. In Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his first sermon, and here's what he says in verse 32. 
God has resurrected this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. And so he's testifying that we have seen these things. Let me give you one more passage to hang your hat on regarding eyewitness testimony from the beginning. If you have your Bibles, you want to flip over to 1 John chapter 1. Look what the Apostle John said. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed. And we have seen it and we testify and declare to you eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. Seven times in those few verses, John is saying, we have touched, we have seen, we have handled we have literally been in the presence of the resurrected Messiah. You can trust our testimony. Most of you are old enough for this question. Can you remember where you were and what you were doing on 9-11? Can you? I vividly remember where I was and what I was doing. I can replay that day, that next week, in my mind's eye because it was so staggering we were in a conference meeting with leadership in Virginia, and we heard about the first plane crash. And wow, I remember pausing, stopping, praying, what's going on? And then the second crash, everything stopped. Ministry changed for six months. We recalibrated everything we did, including going to ground zero and serving as a team as they were rebuilding. I can remember in my mind exactly what 9-11 was like not to minimize that tragic day, but please hear me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so much more spectacular. This is a guy who lived, he taught, he healed, he embraced, he loved, he influenced, but he died. And they were wondering, What's going on here? And they were fretting and they were hiding in the upper room. They weren't sure what's going on. And the next thing you know, some women run to the tomb, not because they thought he was raised from the grave, but to anoint his body. And then they encounter a couple of angels. He's not here, he's risen. They run back to the disciples. And then Peter runs to the tomb. My goodness, could this be? And it was the talk of the town. But, Christ appeared time and time again to over 500 people, nine different occasions. They said, yes, we are eyewitnesses, and we just want to tell you our story. You can trust the sources, Mark and Matthew, but folks, in the New Testament, please hear me. The eyewitness from the beginning to the resurrection is essential for the testimony of Jesus Christ to hang your hat on the real Jesus. Now, finally, trust number four. And this is so important because it ties it all together. You can ultimately trust God's plan. Look at verse 1. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been, key phrase, fulfilled among us. If you miss that phrase, you miss the whole journey of Luke. Luke is going to write about fulfillment. He is going to connect the theological dots of the Old Testament to the New. He is going to point you back to the Messiah prophesied in Genesis 
He is going to show you that, yes, a child will be born of a virgin. Yes, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, although least among the tribes of Judah. All these prophecies of the Old Testament, the messianic expectation is now going to be fulfilled. He's going to point us to the forerunner, John the Baptist, who would prepare for the way for the Lord forecast in the Old Testament. This is all about fulfillment. And so... Fulfillment of God's plan through Jesus Christ is one of the reasons Luke records two resurrection appearances that are unique to Luke. I'm going to give you a moment to turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. I want you to see this, verse 27. You don't see these two appearances in the other gospel accounts, and they're staggering. You may be familiar with the two men on the road to Emmaus. They're going from Jerusalem back home to Emmaus. We're not sure uh, where they're heading, but they're within proximity of Jerusalem, and they are struggling. They are frustrated. They are wondering, and who shows up? Jesus shows up. And he begins talking to them incognito. They don't recognize it's him. Hey, guys, what's going on? Hey, weren't you there? Don't you know what happened in Jerusalem? How can you be oblivious to these things? And the men said in a culture of hospitality, why don't you stay and have dinner with us. So Jesus comes to their home, and here's what Luke 24 says. When he broke bread, their eyes were open. They connected it. This is my body broken for you. When they broke bread, their eyes were open, and look what Jesus does. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them these things concerning themselves. Notice the next phrase in all the scriptures. So these two men, wow, that was great. They head back to Jerusalem. They, they meet up with the rest of the disciples. They tell their story. Yes, we met with the resurrected Christ. Guess who walks through the wall? Jesus, peace be with you. And Jesus did the same thing there. Look what it says in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 45. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. And I love this, this is fulfillment, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be, don't miss this folks, this is Luke, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Fulfillment of the prophecies recorded about Jesus in the law of Moses, in the Psalms and the prophets, reminds us that God is faithful. He will always keep his promises. We sung about that this morning. They are yes, amen in Christ. Now, and probably for us, the question, how do we respond to this? I love the response from the men on the road to Emmaus. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 32 of Luke 24. This is the two men who are walking along the road to Emmaus. We have one of the guy's names, Cleopas. We don't have the other. And here's the response. They said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road? And I love this next statement. And explaining the scriptures to us. You know what these men came to do, folks? They came to trust the scriptures. The scriptures at the time was the Old Testament, 39 books. But they revealed Christ. 
Moses, Psalms, and the prophets pointed to Christ. Some would suggest 300 prophecies are written in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in Christ. Can you imagine the conversation with Jesus and these men, with Jesus and the disciples? But notice the response. Weren't our hearts ablaze within us? That would be the response for all of us this morning. Our hearts ablaze, hearts on fire, not complacent, not ho-hum, been there, done it. This is Jesus, the real Jesus, the revelation of Scripture. Ellen and I had an experience like this this past May. We had the privilege to take a family by their invitation to Israel. It was about a 10-day trip. And the goal of the parents was to influence their young adult daughters for Christ, to help them understand the real Jesus. One was nominal, the other was truly outside of Christ. And so we're mid-trip, we're at Masada, we just came down, we're relaxing. I said, hey, our next stop is where Jesus was baptized by John. We think that's the historical, actual place, beautiful place. And I said, sometimes people like to get rebaptized to kind of rededicate sometimes people like to be obedience of faith and get baptized as a believer. If you have interest, just, just tell me and we'll, we'll plan for that because it's a baptismal site as well. So we're halfway to the Jordan River, about 30 minutes into the trip, and the one gal who did not know the Lord coming on the trip said, I'd like to be baptized. And boy, my heart was warm. And so then we talked. What happened? What happened in this journey? in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Joppa. What happened? What was the aha moment? And I think the aha moment was very similar to these men. The scriptures were open. And when we walked the Via Della Rosa, and when we explained this is a first century tomb, and it could have been the tomb very much like Christ, when we went to the garden tomb, we sat for about an hour and a half and we processed the scriptures. And we saw the stone that would have been rolled away. And we envisioned the angels. And we opened the text. Something stirred in this gal's heart and life and mind. She says, I want to follow Christ. So I had the privilege with her mother to baptize her in the Jordan River. And probably the most beautiful thing that came out of that, immediately she posted that video to Facebook. She professed Christ to all her friends. Count me in. Just like Theophilus, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. I'm going all in with Jesus, even if it costs me a relationship, even if it costs me some friendships, regardless of the cost, I'm all in. So the question this morning, the real Jesus, does God's word stir you like that? To know that God's plan is fulfilled in his son. Does it make you want to just like Theophilus go all in and risk it all for Jesus? Like Luke, to give up your career as a physician in the ancient world to become an investigative reporter to reveal Jesus to others. That's what it means to be salt and light. Be his witnesses to testify of the great things he has done. May that be our story this morning. Just one final thought as we close. I want to put the passage up this morning in 
can highlight the name Theophilus. Theophilus means loved by God. And I think it's very significant to the text. Does God love the world? Absolutely, John 3.16. Does he love the nations and every ethnic and people group? Yes, Revelations 5, 9, and 10. One of the beautiful things we learn is that God loves us here as individuals. He loves a seeker, potentially new believer like Theophilus. He loves you. That's why Luke 15 is in one lost sheep, one lost coin, one lost son. The Redeemer's fulfilled, the Messiah's come. Have you experienced this love? Have you come to know Jesus? Have you been redeemed by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? Luke was second generation. Risked a lot. I get a sense Theophilus came to know the real Jesus. How about you? Christmas 2019 could be the greatest Christmas ever. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon him. I want to know the real Jesus. He'll hear you. He'll save you. He'll come into your life by his Holy Spirit and transform you forever. I want to invite, we have uh, elders who come up front uh, after worship uh, to pray with you. So we're really trying to encourage House of Prayer. So if that is uh, your role as an elder, we encourage you to come forward today. Also, just a few final thoughts. As you exit, please stop in to hospitality if you're a guest. We'd love uh, to say hello to you. And um, parent provision, there's a beautiful table to the left. But last week, we closed out our Beatitude series, and I mentioned a periodical called Voice of the Martyr. Here is one of the gals that we talked about her story, Fenny. She's highlighted in the most recent edition. There's 50 copies out there, and I'm going to commission Caleb. If you get rid of all 50, lunch is on me. So go ahead, Caleb. Caleb be out in the foyer. But again, we just want to inform you of a ministry that's global. A lot of suffering saints around the world, we can partner with that ministry. So pray with me, please. Father, I pray that our hearts would never grow cold to your word, to the revelation of the real Jesus, to the fulfillment of God's plan. So would you take, Father, what Luke gave us today, what your spirit has given us today, and transform our lives, Father. Help us to know the real Jesus. We pray in his powerful name. Amen.